I often ask my students at Eastern University a simple question. Why did Jesus come into the world? What was his mission? To what end did he break into history? I get all kinds of good answers. There are those who say he came to reveal God to us. Indeed, it says that in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, in him was the fullness of God revealed. He came to show us what it means to be an actualized human being, to use the terminology of modern psychology. And on his trial, the Pilate points to him and says, Echo homo, you read that in the scriptures, behold the man, and probably the only man that ever existed. All of us are human beings in a sense. We're homo sapiens striving to become human. But we've got a long way to go before we actualize all the potentialities of what it means to be human. That's a good answer. There are those who came to say he, he came to bear the sins of the world. Upon him was laid the iniquities of us all. He came to give us life, to give us life more abundantly. The list goes on and on and on. Very seldom do they come up with the right answer. They're all good answers, but they're not the right answer. If you would ask Jesus, why did you come? What's your mission? Every great leader has a mission statement. What's your mission, Jesus? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, being the great leader that he was and is, he gives his mission statement. I have come, he says, check it out. I have come to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. Over and over again, the kingdom of God is at hand. All of his parables are about the kingdom of God. Check it out. How often do they begin? And the kingdom of God shall be likened unto a man who sows uh, seeds for wheat. Uh, how often do you hear the words, the kingdom of God? When he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, when you pray, pray for the kingdom. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? This is obviously not a Pentecostal church. <laughs> Let's try that one more time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? That's better. On earth. We're not talking about pie in the sky when you die. When I was growing up in the Baptist church where I still hang out, that's all I ever heard. I heard that you needed to get Christ into your life or else you wouldn't go to heaven when you died. It was all about getting ready for the next world. Jesus speaks very little about the next world. That is not his focus. His focus is about his kingdom here in this world. He spoke to a Jewish audience. And the ancient Jews had a very clear image of what the kingdom of God would be like. All through the Hebrew Bible, there are descriptions of the kingdom. I always point my students to the 61st chapter of Isaiah. It says when, when the kingdom comes, when the new Jerusalem is revealed, children will not die in infancy. We lose 17,000 children every morning through starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. No more. Old people will live out their lives in health and well-being. Being old myself, that's good news. <laughs> Next thing, everybody will have a decent house to live in. They will build houses not for other people, but for themselves. Everybody will have a job in the vineyard. There will be no economic exploitation. People will be paid fair wages for their labors. It says it right there in the Bible. When the kingdom of God becomes a historical reality, 
Neither shall they hurt the earth anymore for any environmentalist that are here. It's going to come to an end, this desecration of the earth. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. War will come to an end. This is the good news. This is the good news. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. It's not yet here. It's not yet here. I have my gripes with a lot of contemporary modern worship music. Because while the young people love it and get into it because it's their music, its theology is sometimes totally off the wall. For instance, one of the most famous songs that you people sing is My God Reigns. He doesn't, people. The old hymns were better. They never said, our God reigns. They said, Jesus shall reign where o'er the sun. Future tense. When you sing the hallelujah chorus, you sing what? And the kings of this world, what? Will become the kingdom of our God. The kingdom of God actualized in history is a future event. It's not now. It always sounds like heresy when I say, God is not in control of the world. You say, well, I've always believed that. Yeah, and you were wrong. <laughs> in the, in the, you go to 1 John 5, 19 as a case in point, where it says specifically, Satan is the ruler of this world. When Satan is dealing with Jesus in the great temptation stories, does he not say, here are all the kings of the world, Jesus, they are mine to give you. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. When they come to arrest Jesus, he says to his disciples, the rulers of this world, the ruler of this world is coming to get me. I could show you over and over again in the book of, books of, of Paul that he talks about Satan being in control of this world. God created a wonderful world, a good world. Everything was as it ought to be. And it got messed up. It's called the fall. It's called sin. We've destroyed the mess, made a mess out of God's creation. And it's to that end that God sent his son into the world, not just to get us into heaven, but to rescue the world from what it has become. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The word there is cosmos. It means everything that's in the world. It means the huge corporations, the labor unions, the governments, all the principalities and powers all the social institutions, he came to rescue them, to deliver them from the mess that they're in because of the mess we've made of them. To this end, he sent his son into the world. And his son lived among us. Let me say this. Christ always was. Before Jesus was ever born, there was a Christ. He's the second member of the Trinity. Does it not say in the first chapter of John that he, not only was he before the creation of the universe... He's the one who created the universe. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Christ was before Jesus. 2,000 years, Christ, the second member of the Trinity, broke into history, took on a human body, and became one of us. Because only by becoming one of us could he show us the love, the love that he has for us. I remember as a boy in my junior class in Sunday school, the teacher said to the little boys and girls of which I was one, boys and girls, there was once a man who loved ants. And out behind his house, there was an anthill. 
And every day he would go out and yell at the ants, I love you, I love you, I love you. But they never got the message. He was a human being. They were ants. They don't communicate with each other. He gave them bread. He gave them jam. He gave them sugar. But still, in spite of all the good gifts, they didn't get the message. But I didn't tell you one thing about this man, boys and girls. He was a magician, and he could change himself into anything. If he really wanted to communicate with ants, what would he do? Without hesitation, with one voice, we said, he changed himself into an ant. And the teacher said, exactly. Only by becoming one of them could he communicate with them. And then she made the message. God loves us. He tried to communicate his love. But we never really got the message until he became one of us. And that's what Jesus was. He was the incarnation of God. The Christ that created the universe had a human body. We called him Jesus. And for some 30 plus years, he, he healed people. He preached. He taught. He, he did many magnus, magnificent and wondrous things. And then he was crucified, dead, buried. He was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven. But before he left, he gathered together some of his friends and he said, you're going to be you're going to be the body of Christ. He didn't say those words. Paul would later say them. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was the physical body of Christ. But he still has an incarnation. We are the body of Christ. I know what you're going to say. It's not the same thing. We're not like Jesus. No, you're not. That's pretty obvious. But you ought to be. You say, well, you, you, there was something, uh, there was a special spirit in, in Jesus that made him the Christ. Of course, and here's what it says in the 8th chapter of Romans. And the same spirit that was in Christ Jesus and raised him from the dead, that same spirit shall be in your mortal bodies. You are the body of Christ. You've heard that said a hundred times over your lifetime. You are the body of Christ, but you never took it literally. You say, are you telling me that the same Christ that was incarnated in Jesus is incarnated in us? Exactly. You say, well, we don't act like Jesus. And that's the problem. Why not? If John Wesley said anything, it was this. That you who have Christ have no excuse for not becoming like Jesus. Because that same spirit is in you. And you have the same mission that Jesus has. I told you that Jesus' mission was to change the world from what it is into the kind of world that God wants for it to be. That was his mission. And even as it was the mission of Jesus 2,000 years ago, the then body of Christ, so it is the mission of you people, the now body of Christ. You are the people in whom the same Christ that was trying to change the world through the physical body of Jesus is supposed to be in you and working through you to change this world from what it is into the kind of world that God wants it to be. But here's the caveat. The methodology of changing the world is different. The world has only known one way of changing the world, through power. And so we have had would-be messiahs who are going to change the world. Uh, a Hitler, a, a, a Napoleon, uh, these people who rise up and say, give me the power and I'll change the world and make the world what it ought to be. 
Jesus chose to change the world, not through the use of power, but through sacrificial love. That's the big difference. Sacrificial love. Now, I'm a sociologist by trade, and one of my favorite sociologists is a guy you haven't heard about on this side of the pond, Willard Waller. I love the name, Willard Waller. You wonder what kind of people with the last name Waller would name a kid Willard. You know, you wonder about that. Especially when I tell you that Willard Waller was born and raised in Walla Walla, Washington. You talk about being screwed up. Can you imagine growing up as Willard Waller from Walla Walla? I mean, oh, terrible. He came up with a basic sociological rule. Listen to it. You cannot express love and power at the same time. Let me repeat that. You cannot express love and power at the same time. When you start loving, you lose power. Or to put it in another way, love makes you vulnerable. Love makes you weak. Read your Bible. Jesus did not come in power. He came in weakness. It says in the scripture you heard read this morning, he who thought it not robbery to be equal with God emptied himself. The word in the Greek is kenosis. He got rid of his power and took upon himself the form of a servant. In the original language, you probably know that the word is doulos, which means slave. He became a slave. How much power does a slave make? How much power does a slave exercise? None at all. And he, the ruler of the universe, emptied himself of power and took upon himself the form of a slave and made himself of repu no reputation and humbled himself unto death, even unto the death of the cross. Hear me, people. He came to change the world, not through the use of his power, but through sacrificial love, which is what the cross is all about. Now, let me tell you what another sociologist said. Max Weber, one of the greatest of all the sociologists, in his book on social and economic organization, he differentiates between power and authority. Power is the ability to coerce. If you do what I tell you because I, you have to. You know, when the cop waves my car over to the side of the road because I'm speeding and comes alongside of the car, I obey him. He's got power. It's called a gun. He doesn't have to pull the gun. I know it's there. He has power to coerce. You have power if you can coerce people and if you use coercion. Our Jesus never coerces anybody into his kingdom. If you surrender your life to Christ, it's not because you're forced to. If you bow your knee to Jesus, it's not because you have to. He doesn't coerce people into his kingdom. He's not into coercion. Here's what it says in scripture. If I be lifted up, you know what he meant by that. Crucified. If I be lifted up, I will do what? I will draw all men and all women unto myself. It's called authority. If you do what I tell you because you have to, I have power. But if when I speak, you obey me because you want to, I have authority. There's no question as you go through the scripture that Jesus spoke as one having authority. He had authority. I don't think that word is in scripture by accident. I believe that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit and the words are carefully chosen. Jesus came not 
like Herod who had power, not like Caesar who had power. He came as one having authority. Max Weber also, it connotates where you get authority. It's through giving, particularly sacrificial giving. The more one, my mother had great authority over me, no power. She was a little Italian lady. I could have kicked her down the steps. But when she spoke, I obeyed because she had authority. And where did she get that authority? A thousand and one sacrificial acts for me. Sacrificing for me over and over and over again. She earned authority. She earned authority. If sacrificial acts earn authority, you know who has more authority than anybody in human history. Obviously, it's Jesus. Nobody has sacrificed more than Jesus. There's his authority. And he's going to become Lord. The passage that I read to you from the second chapter of Philippians doesn't end where I stopped. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, emptied himself, took upon himself the form of slave, made himself of no reputation, humbled himself unto death, even unto the death of the cross. It doesn't stop there. It says, and therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But hear me, people, his lordship is not built on power. It's built on sacrificial love. It's built on the cross. It's because of the cross. It's because of his sacrificial love that he will change the world. And those who would be followers of Jesus, those who would be the body of Christ now, must, as he says, they must take up the cross. They must take up the cross. Each of us must live out lives that will change the world, and those lives are lives marked by sacrificial love. And the measurement of your Christianity is not in how much power you exercise, but how much sacrificial love you live out in your everyday life, in the world in which you live, in the places where you go, in the conversations that you have, uh, is sacrificial love the guiding force in your being? Is it the determining force in your being? I said that love and power were diametrically opposed. You should know that from your personal experience. Here's a husband, here's a wife. She loves him intensely. He doesn't care about her at all. He doesn't care whether she stays or leaves. He's he, he doesn't care very much. She cares desperately. Who's in a position of control? Who's in a position of power? He is. But his power and his control is contingent on the fact that he doesn't love her very much. If he loved her, he would become vulnerable. He would become weak. That's what the Bible says. We've got a God who for our sakes set aside his power and became weak. He became vulnerable. As a matter of fact, I think that most Christians have not accepted the fact that in Jesus Christ, God set aside his power because we're still playing power games. That's what the evangelical community in the United States is into. They love Donald Trump. Why? Because he's got power. And he talks with arrogance. And he's the power man of our time. He knows how to handle those, that rocket man in North Korea. Threaten him with a bigger button 
I'll blow you off the map. And he comes in power. And he comes in power. And the evangelical community has been seduced by Satan. You say, Satan? Do you remember the temptations of Jesus? What are they all about? They're all about trying to give, get Jesus to give up this sacrificial love trip and change the world through the use of his power. Stop to look at the story. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, what does he say? Turn the stones into bread. Feed the hungry of the world. Use your power to feed the hungry of the world. Number two, if you're the son of God, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Show them some signs and wonders. That'll get the crowd to follow you. Jeez, especially if you can do it on television. That's the way to get a following. Signs and wonders. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to all the people with my power. As a matter of fact, if you read through the miracles, he refuses to use his power as a means of getting a following. Every time he performs a miracle, he's, he's telling people, shh, don't tell anybody. He changes water into wine. Man, if I could do that, I'd let it be known. Hey, man, you want a good Messiah? I'm it, baby. I can change water into wine. That would get a following, not Jesus. He tells the people who have seen the miracle, Go to the master of the feast. Don't tell him where you got the wine. No wonder the disciples were fed up with him. This is our chance, man. We can get a movement going on this one. Time and time again, he heals people and says, go to the temple. Tell the priest, but don't make a big thing out of this. I don't want people following me because I'm a miracle worker. I want people following me out of love. Out of love out of sacrificial love, even as I have loved them, so I want them to love one another and to love their neighbor and even to love their enemies. He's into changing the world through sacrificial love. What a Jesus. What a way of changing the world. You say sacrificial love won't change the world. You've got to have power. The only thing that has ever worked is sacrificial love. In my own country, there are those who tried to change the race relations between blacks and whites through political power. I'm not against that. I'm just saying it never worked until Martin Luther King came along. And when his people marched from Selma to Montgomery in that famous march where they got to the bridge, and there they were facing the sheriff with his troops, with vicious dogs, with clubs, with machine guns, and the sheriff said, turn back. And these demonstrators said, we can't turn back. We've come too far to turn back now. And they charged into them. And they beat in their heads. And the dogs were released. And the fire hoses were turned on them. And I was with some students at the University of Pennsylvania where I was teaching at that time. And the students were shocked. And I said, don't you get it? They just won. The civil rights movement is winning right now. They said, we don't get it. They're killing those people. I said, you're right. But we people of God have a nasty habit of rising again. For there is no power on earth that can keep us down. That old song, go ahead, put the spear in my side. Go ahead, put the crown of thorns on my head. Go ahead, crucify me, but I'll rise again. That's the gospel message. 
Our Christianity is not so much built on the cross as it is on the resurrection. That's not my theology. Paul says that. Doesn't he not say, if Christ be not raised from the dead, then the whole thing's a joke. Our faith is vain. I don't want to know whether you believe in the penal substitutionary doctrine of the atonement, which I do. I want to know, do you have a personal relationship with the resurrected Jesus? He's here. He's now. Are you willing to surrender to him and say, invade my life? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Make me into what you are. An instrument for changing the world that is into the world that ought to be. And let me tell you this. Our calling is to bring all principalities, all powers, all dominions, all thrones into subjection to him. Are you ready for the next line? Here it comes. Through the church. You say, wait a minute. The church is a feeble, flabby instrument that isn't doing much of anything in the world. It's about time you get off that kick. You people in the British Isles are, are big on putting down the church and saying, it's an anemic, it's, it's dying, it's a, it's a bike. First of all, don't think that the British Empire exists anymore. It doesn't. And your feeble little islands are not the world. The truth is the church is in trouble in the United Kingdom. It's not in trouble in China. It's growing leaps and bounds. In Africa, they add 50,000 new baptisms to the church every single week. In Latin America, they start 200 new church plants, and they don't call it a church until there are more than 200 people in attendance. The church is exploding around the world. The fact that a bunch of secular, materialistic people in, in these little islands are, are, are turning their back on Jesus doesn't mean the world is turning its back on Jesus. This is the greatest era of evangelism, of church growth in human history. People, what's going on in the world today is greater than what happened on the day of Pentecost. And I think it's time that we face the fact. 25 years ago, 25 years ago, 45,000 children die every day of starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. It's now down to 17,000. And who has put the hospitals in these developing countries? Who have brought the vaccines? Who has brought nurses and doctors to these desperate places? It's been the church of Jesus Christ. 25 years ago, one out of every six person on the planet had no access to clean drinking water. Today, it's one out of 12. We've improved the situation 100%. And guess who has drilled most of the wells, dug most of the wells in poor countries? It's been the church of Jesus Christ. We don't get credit because we put ourselves down. We're the greatest thing that ever came down in the course of history. The God that we believe in is at work in the world through people like us, and we are so feeble. If only we would become totally surrendered, totally yielded, totally open to the work that God wants to do in us and through us. Think of what's happened. If so much is taking place, 25 years ago, 80% of the population of the world was illiterate. Today, it's down to 20%. Guess who has done almost all the literacy training in the world today? The Church of Jesus Christ. 25 years ago, Millard Fuller, a friend of mine, called me on the phone and said, we've got this idea, we're going to build houses for poor people. I thought, that's good. That's kingdom work. How are we going to do it? We're going to raise money for building supplies. That's good. And we did. And then we're going to build the houses and sell the houses to poor people. No down payment because they can never come up with a down payment. We're going to sell the houses with long-term mortgages, no interest on the mortgages. Because in the Old Testament, 
we're told specifically, you shouldn't charge interest to poor people. I said, fine. And where are you going to get the money to hire the electricians, the plumbers, the carpenters? He said, we're not going to. We're going to get church people to build these houses. Like me. He said, like you. I said, right. 25 years later, this never appeared in your newspaper. This didn't even appear in your religious publications. Habitat for Humanity, this Christian faith-based organization working through churches, completed, are you ready for the figure? It's one millionth house. A million houses. People of God. It's about time we stop putting down the church. I say it's time to give the church a cheer. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. hip. That's what we need to hear from the church. We need to hear a cheering group of people who say God is at work in the world through a bunch of lousy Christians. And if they would become committed Christians, I can't imagine what would happen if he's able to do so much with so little, with our commitment. What would he do if we were fully committed to him and to the work that he wants to do in this world to change the world from what it is into what God wants it to be. And whenever I talk about love and power, they always say, yeah, but that's cute, but you're not going to stop Hitler that way. You ever hear that line? Let me just say, the only time, too, that Hitler was really stopped from doing the horrible things in a European country were in two places, Denmark and Bulgaria. The Denmark story is well known. That when the word was given that every Jew should wear an armband with the Star of David. The king of Denmark started wearing the armband with the Star of David. The word spread across Denmark and everywhere godly people put armbands on. We're all Jews. You're going to kill the Jews, kill us all. And Hitler backed off. The other times, even more dramatic. It was in Bulgaria. Bulgaria was a Nazi nation from day one. It wasn't conquered by Hitler. It was allied with Hitler. In spite of that fact, not a single Bulgarian Jew ever died in a concentration camp. And it was because of the church. The SS came to Sofia, the capital, rounded up about 600 Jews, marched them down to the train station, put them in the barbed wire enclosure. The cattle cars, the train pulled up. They were about to load the Jews onto the train. It was a rainy, misty, foggy night. And out of the fog came Metropolitan Kirill, the leader of the Bulgarian church. He stood six foot four to start with. But those Orthodox priests wear that mitre on top of their heads. Gives them an extra foot. Get the picture. Out of the fog comes this figure seven foot four huge white beard hanging down over his robes his stride was so great that the 300 men who were marching behind him had to run to keep up with the old man he came to the entrance of the barbed wire enclosure the ss troopers pointed their guns at him they said you can't go in there father he laughed he laughed at them and pushed aside their guns. And as he marched in, he said, if you go in there, we're not going to let you out. You'll go with them. He stood among the Jews and changed the destiny of a nation with a Bible verse. One verse. You say, what's the verse? Get the picture. He raises his fist over his head. 
and he yells at the Jews from the book of Ruth. Whithersoever thou goest, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And the Jews cheered. And the 300 plus men that were standing outside the barbed wire enclosure, they cheered. The uproar was so great that frightened people came out of their houses and charged down to the, to the train station. And the crowd got larger and larger and larger. And the SS troopers realized they couldn't get away with it. They boarded the train and they left and they never came back again. The church of Jesus Christ. These are the stories we're not telling. These are the tales that need to be told. We are the people of God. We are the body of Christ. And this is why the scripture says so powerfully, in the best sense of it, walk worthy. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. God came into the world to change the world. That's what Jesus was all about. Jesus was the then body of Christ. We are the now body of Christ. And we will win. History is on our side. As Billy Graham would say, I read the Bible, I know how it ends. We win. And you sing the hallelujah chorus. It tells you how the world's going to end. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our God. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.